The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We got the power to change the world. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We've talked a lot about nutrition and a good diet and how it helps with various diseases. We've talked about attention deficit disorder and various nutritional approaches to it. But let's talk about more mental illness. Uh, do, do the same principles apply to mental illnesses such as depression and schizophrenia? Uh, does um, that the vitamins, can it help at all? Why does, in some cases of depression, schizophrenia, some medications work? And some don't. So uh, we will delve further into this because we have an expert on this topic. We've got Dr. William Walsh who's seen thousands and thousands of patients and carefully documented many different things about him, about them. So Dr. Walsh is the president of a non, the nonprofit Walsh Research Institute near Chicago, and he directs doctor training programs in the U.S., Australia, and Norway. During his over 30 years Experience as a research scientist and engineer, Dr. Walsh developed a science-based nutrient system that has helped thousands of patients challenged by behavioral disorders, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, adult deficit disorder, autism, and Alzheimer's disease. These methods are used by doctors throughout the world. He has researched biochemical details for individuals previously considered as untreatable from personality disorders to other insufficiently treatable with modern psychopharmacology. His approach recognizes that nutrient imbalances can alter brain levels of key neurotransmitters, which disrupts gene expression of proteins and enzymes, and thus cripples the body of its protection against environmental toxins. His book, Nutrient Power, published by Skyhouse Publishing in 2012, describes his findings the, and the advanced nutrient therapies which correct the biochemical and methylation imbalances that are causing learning, behavioral, developmental, and mental health disorders. Welcome, Dr. Walsh. Quite an honor to have you here. Well, hello, Dr. Susan. Good to, good to talk with you. Yes. Uh, I understand you were trained in nuclear science and engineering. We both have engineering backgrounds here. So how did you start researching brain chemistry and human behavior? Well, I was, a I was a scientist at Argonne National Laboratory many years ago, and I, I got involved as a volunteer at a local prison, Statesville Penitentiary, and uh, I eventually had a group of 125 volunteers doing sort of na naive uh, 
attempts at trying to help people in prison and coming out of prison. And when I started a ex-offender program, I started. I began to meet with families that had produced a criminal, and I kept running into families that seemed like really capable, caring families that may have had five or six children, and and. And, and where many of the kids were doing just beautifully, and one of them had been a disaster from the time he was two years old and, and headed for the penitentiary. And we began to wonder, what's the real cause of a, of a behavior disorder? And myself and my colleagues, who are most of them scientists at Argonne National Laboratory, we, we started delving into, the, into, the, into research and into psychiatry and, and microbiology, and um, that's how it started. And one thing led to another, and after about 10 years of that, I, I quit my job as a scientist at Argonne, formed a public charity, and uh, been researching neuroscience, neurobiology, and uh, ways to help patients, um, trying to understand exactly what's going on in a person's brain when they develop anxiety or depression or even uh, what, what can um, tend to cause certain children to be violent and others to be quite normal. And so that's how it started. And so what have you learned about these criminals? Uh, what age does it start? Do they have different biochemistry? Is that something we can address? Uh, yes, we can. Uh, what we found was very interesting. We, um, I got my, my best uh, clue in the beginning when I met uh, Dr. Carl Pfeiffer, who was uh, we, back uh, 20, 25 years ago, was probably the most famous and the most capable uh, nutritional scientist in the world. And uh, he got interested in my research, and he guided me uh, into studying uh, trace metals, methylation, uh, pyrrol disorders, and, and various kinds of the chemical imbalances that are inborn. Uh, that are correctable without using drugs, and that's that's how how things really began. And I he actually collaborated with me for about about twelve years, and between us we worked with uh, five hundred patients uh, with various problems. And basically, most people who wind up uh, with a with a really serious behavior disorder are are born with a powerful tendency for that, and um, and it has and in the, the good news is that a lot of this can be created without having to resort to drug therapy. Well, I've always found drug therapy not very helpful for behavioral problems or antisocial tendencies. So uh, what kind of things did you find in these youths, and what did you do to help them get better? We found, after getting a lot of data, a lot of blood and urine and, and uh, tissue chemical analyses, what, what we found was that uh, behavior disorders come in at least four major types. The smallest group are the sociopaths, the antisocial personality disorder people, and we found out that they have a very consistent set of abnormal chemistry. They're all under-methylated. They all have extraordinary oxidative stress. They tend to have low, low copper levels and on and on. There, there are uh, five or six classic chemical imbalances that they were born with. That, that tended them toward this route. But then the most common uh, form of behavior disorders are people with um, metal metabolism disorders. They tend to have an inability to regulate copper and zinc. They tend to be zinc deficient and have a copper overload. And that's, that uh, is associated with Jekyll Hyde behavior, people with, with a tendency to have extraordinary reaction when they get upset or, or stressed. And, and a lot of the people we saw in prison had that kind of chemistry. 
And eventually we, we developed a, a set of uh, four uh, uh, um, classification system for behavior, and there are four major types of, of, of behavior disorders, um, and, and, and it encompasses everything from mild, moderate, to the kind of severe behaviors you see in people in prison. Uh, and we eventually uh, um, did medical evaluations and treatment of more than 10,000 people mostly young boys, but also including many, many, many convicted criminals, uh, and, and had really excellent results uh, based on outcome studies, very carefully done outcome studies, where we simply gave them nutrient therapy to normalize their brain chemistry and then measured their, uh, me- measured their, their behaviors before and after. We just last month uh, published a paper in, um, with Griffith University uh, in, in Australia, where we did a double blind, uh, we did a, a blind study with um, uh, 30, 31 very violent males, young males, young youth, and and as as as, as happened uh, consistently, we're able to help them rather strikingly uh, without having to resort to drug medications. So uh, can a mother uh, try some of these things like uh, giving her kids zinc and trying a healthy diet, or does she need to go to a doctor to find out the next step to help with her child? Well, I think it depends whether you have a person whose problem is mild, moderate, or severe. If you've got a, a child with a, moderate, with a mild or moderate problem, uh, you can often get a lot accomplished with, with diet alone. But if you have a, a rather severe situation, and there are literally uh, a few million people, kids in the U.S. with this problem, you, you can't do it with nutrition alone or with diet alone. Uh, you have to do, go through a medical procedure where, where you do some specialized testing, which, by the way, can be quite inexpensive, and, and identify what their biochemical individuality is. Identify what their chemical imbalances are, and then and then correct them. And we're able to correct them usually with nutrient therapy using specific amino acids, vitamins, and minerals. Um, using using um, using our, our understanding of brain science and brain chemistry, and and the powerful impact of nutrients on the brain, we're generally able in most cases to to. To, to help really help them based on the reports we get from them and their doctors. So if a mother were bringing her child to the doctor, is there, are there specific tests that she can ask for while she's looking for somebody that understands your work? Well, you could do that. Um, we have a portfolio of, of lab tests <clears throat> that we think are, are especially good. Uh, and I could list them off. Their, their, we, need to, we need to test for their methylation status. We need to know whether they're zinc deficient. We need to know their serum copper, urine pyrroles. There are a list of these tests that we do. Um, and the problem with is that most doctors are not familiar with the tests and don't know how to evaluate the results. So over the last few years, my group has been um, training doctors throughout the world. We've now, we now have more than 500 and. 20 doctors, including many psychiatrists, who are now trained in these protocols. We've, we've, in the U.S. alone, we have more than 250 doctors now scattered throughout the, the country that are doing these protocols. And uh, if someone's interested in pursuing this, on our website, walshinstitute.org, one, one can find a list of doctors 
um, probably in a person's general area that that is capable and experienced at these at these kinds of protocols. I know we have several in, in California, for example. Now, your book emphasizes and talks a lot about the role of epigenetics in mental illness. So, what is this, and why is it important? Well, epigenetics is a is a emerging science <clears throat> that has a, a tremendous. Uh, lot to do with how your brain functions. And epigenetics is a, is a, natural, a natural process that, that uh, is set up during the nine months of gestation before you're born. And, so, and, and it has to do with methylation. Your DNA, different parts of your DNA and different parts of your body uh, react with methyl. And, and, and what, the, what happens is that this regulates what nutrients are, are, are nurturing and nourishing the, your, every cell in your body. And, and that system can be altered by environmental insults. It can be altered by severe traumatic uh, experiences after birth. And, and, it, and it has a lot to do with, with certain diseases. For example, we now know that cancer is an epigenetic disorder where environmental insults overwhelm your DNA and, and alter it permanently. It now looks like, like schizophrenia and autism and post-traumatic stress are epigenetic disorders. And uh, this, this uh, is all in the area of, you might say, fairly recent brain science. And, and it hasn't yet um, made its way into clinical practice, but I think within, within a few years it's going to be a standard aspect of psychiatry and of, and of medicine. And it's something that uh, what's really interesting is that epigenetic science now explains so many things to us with respect to how nutrients impact the brain. For example, we now know that, that um, methionine, amino acid, and SAMI, which is a, a, a methylating compound that's now available in health food stores, they act as serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And, and have the same impact as Prozac and Paxil in medications. So this gives us the ability in many cases to help somebody who has depression, clinical depression, and we can normalize the brain without using a drug. Uh, drugs, of course, are foreign molecules, and they, they, they may help somebody reduce anxiety or depression, but they don't normalize the brain. And we now have the ability, in many cases, to normalize brain function with nutrients. Uh, we've, we've, um, I recently gave a lecture at the, um, at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, where they had actually 17,000 psychiatrists in one building in New York City. And I gave a lecture uh, basically showing the psychiatrists and explaining that they were doing depression all wrong. Uh, they have this misconception in mainstream psychiatry that depression is a sort of a single, a single disorder that, uh, a lot, and that the major theme is low serotonin activity, the slow rate of, of neurotransmission of this, this uh, neurotransmitter serotonin. And I have, I believe, the world's biggest chemistry database for depression. And we found that actually this word depression is a name given, I call it an umbrella term, for at least five completely different disorders, each with different neurotransmitter abnormalities, each one needing a different therapy. And so um, I, 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 for the first time, 
that I've been to uh, the APA meetings. I've been there five times now. The first four times I, I thought I brought them important information, but nobody paid any attention. But this time, which was back three years ago, it got a lot of attention. And and as, after that, I've, I've now have many many psychiatrists who who um, are probably our most enthusiastic doctors who are doing the nutrient therapy. Uh, and it works especially well with depression, with with inexpensive lab tests. We can identify. Among other things, which 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 drugs are likely to help them and which ones are likely to harm them, but more importantly, we're able to identify uh, what's gone wrong with their brain neurotransmission, and we can specifically identify ind- individual by individual what nutrients can really help them. That's pretty impressive. Just for the audience, I just want to touch back on epigenetics. What it means is that environmental. Uh, things can change our actual gene expression, turning genes on and off, which means that whatever we inherited is not the final word. Usually environmental situations and lifestyles contribute about 60-70% of what happens in our disease course. Now, you mentioned different kinds of depression. You mentioned methionine and SAMI works as well as the serotonin reuptake inhibitor such as Prozac, but that only works in one category of depression called undermethylated. So can you describe your different categories of depression and what uh, test that a uh, patient might want to explore to see what medication will work for them? Because some of the people with low folate I understand that the SSRIs and various supplements will exacerbate and make them feel worse. So this is crucial so we can find tailor it to the person's individual chemistry. Can you explain a little more about that? Okay, I'll do my best to give a summary. Uh, you mentioned undermethylation. That is the largest uh, group of, of all the depressives in our population, and our, our population is more than 3,000 uh, depressives. Um, and and it's 38 percent of the population, so it's it's the largest group. They have they, they suffer from low serotonin activity, and so they 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 thrive on anything that'll increase serotonin activity, and it's really a lot to do with epigenetics, because the the controlling factor is this thing called reuptake. It's not how much serotonin you've got in your brain; it's how quickly uh, it returns to the original brain cell once it's sent into a synapse. It's called reuptake, and it's controlled by an epigenetic uh, mechanism. And uh, what we learned is that if you're undermethylated and you have depression, um, you cannot give this patient folates. And the reason is that the epigenetic effect of folates is it acts as a serotonin reuptake promoter. It makes these people's depression worse even though it helps their methylation. That's one of the complications that a lot of doctors are now struggling with. But basically, it, it's, uh, it's something that we, we've seen for 30 years, and now we finally understand it. Now, the, there's also overmethylation. About 20% of all people who are depressed have a, a severe anxiety along with depression, and they have the opposite situation. They have too much neurotransmission. They're high in dopamine and especially norepinephrine, and they have too much serotonin activity. These are the people who are depressed. They get dramatically worse if you give them a Prozac or Paxil or some SSRI. I mean, a lot of psychiatrists will scratch their head and wonder, well, why, why do they get worse? They're depressed. The answer is they have this other form of depression that involves excessive neurotransmission. A third group, which uh, affect mainly females, are high copper um, depressants. 
people who have an inability to regulate copper in their brain. And this has a dramatic impact on, on two neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and dopamine. So if a person has, if, let's say if a, if a woman has uh, high levels of copper in, in their body and in their brain, they will have much more norepinephrine that, than they need, and that's a recipe for, for trouble. That's a recipe for, for depression and, a, and especially anxiety, and in serious cases, actually psychosis. It also is associated with low dopamine levels, dopamine, which is a sort of a feel-good neurotransmitter. And um, we now know that, that more than 95% of women with postpartum depression simply have excessive copper levels. We've published this in uh, peer-reviewed journals, and we've now treated more than 800 cases of postpartum depression, and they're the easiest people. Isn't this something exacerbated by the fact that copper levels tend to go up in pregnancy, and these unfortunate women just cannot clear it as well as others? You're exactly right. They don't have a... uh, protein system called metallothionine functioning well. That's the system that regulates copper. So a woman can have a perfectly normal life until they have their first or second child. And during the nine months of pregnancy, the, a, per, a, a woman's copper level more than doubles. It tendly, tends to go from about 100 micrograms per deciliter in, in blood all the way up to about 220, and that's natural and necessary for the growing fetus because you need copper to be at high levels for the growing baby uh, for what they call angiogenesis. Uh, you need It helps uh, de- rapidly develop blood vessels, which is going on really quickly as that little tiny baby is growing. Uh, and the problem is uh, right after childbirth, right after delivery, the copper level is supposed to go right back down to normal. And in postnatal depression, this doesn't happen. These women don't have the the ability, the biochemical ability, to bring their copper down. And their their copper levels being so high uh, causes extraordinary anxiety and depression. Uh, I'm convinced they should, should not be called Can this lead to postpartum psychosis as well? Yes, we've had more than 100 cases of postpartum psychosis, and, it, and these are the same women, uh, except that they have an ex- extraordinary severe version of this, and we find their copper levels can just be uh, shockingly high, and uh, once, once we, we normalize their copper, which, by the way, takes uh, two to three months to normalize uh, a copper overload, to bring, to sort of get the copper, the excess copper out, uh, most of them become strikingly better and uh, we our, our, our outcome studies that we've done carefully show that this is probably the highest uh, success group that we have this, more than 90% of these patients report back that their problem is gone and many of them can just throw away their medication and it's really sad that some of these people uh, have suffered from, from this postpartum depression for 20 or 30 years it may not go away I mean mo- most women have a little bit of postpartum depression that might might last a week or two and then it fades away for these for these women it can it can stay uh, really a, a severe problem for the rest of their lives if it's not corrected so that's okay. the third kind of depression yes there are there are two others uh, another form of depression uh, relates to toxic metals uh, now this used to be five percent of all depressives were simply depressed because they had a, a great overload of perhaps lead or mercury. Uh, this is actually, this group is now shrinking because ever since they took lead out of gasoline. 
And since people got more careful about avoiding uh, um, paint uh, in, uh, that had high levels of lead, um, but still, for some people, this is this is everything. There are more than a million people in America who are depressed simply because they have a toxic metal overload. And the, and there are treatments that that are very successful in pulling these toxics out. And that process takes usually more like three or four months to do this really completely and permanently. The fifth group, the fifth major type of depression, is what we call pyrrole depression. People who have this thing called a pyrrole disorder, which is a way of saying extraordinary oxidative overload, an extraordinary oxidative stress, extraordinary levels of free radicals in your body and in your brain can by themselves cause extraordinary anxiety, depression, and uh, really can afflict a person. This is our favorite kind of, this is our favorite imbalance in depression because these are the people who, who are easiest to diagnose and, and when you treat them, they're the ones that get, get better really quickly. We have some people who've been depressed for years who, who report that they're dramatically better within just a week or two. And um, so anyway, that's the, 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 the five different major kinds of depression that, that encompasses about 90 to 95% of all the people we've seen with depression. And, that's very um, interesting. We're coming up to a break fairly closely, so I'd like to make a couple of points. The parole disorder, it, you can usually diagnose it by uh, low zinc and vitamin B6, which will help it. Also, it can manifest just as an anxiety disorder, uh, you know, usually with social anxiety. So that's something to look out for that, uh, you know, could be very, fairly simple to fix. Concerning the metals, I think we've had, like Dr. Green, Greenblatt mentioned, that metals can be a factor in attention deficit disorder. And next week, Dr. Bredesen will mention that there's a whole type of Alzheimer's disease that he considers toxic with metals. So metals are always something very important that we need to look at in our uh, healing and our illnesses and what's causing us problems. So uh, we're going to have a break now, and we'll be back with Dr. Walsh in just a minute. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan with Dr. William Walsh. What I partic- uh, one interesting thing about what he does is it's not just measuring methylation, but it's looking at the sum of the various components that are methylating that meets the synapse. So uh, this will conflict with some people's concept of methylation. So that's one little caveat. But what I particularly like, like in depression, he summarizes it like the under-methylated people, that they will respond well at SSRI, SAMI, methionine, vitamin B6, tryptophan. And he has certain blood tests to look for these people. They tend to have high blood histamine levels, low SAMI ratio to SAH. So that's very interesting. Then the over-methylators are low folate. These people can be anxious, uh, panicky. Their lab values, they have low uh, blood histamines, high SAMI to SAH, and low folate. And they respond poorly to the SSRIs and tryptophan and tyrosine, but respond well to folate and vitamin B12 and the the cinnamide, uh, etc. So that could explain a lot of the conflicting papers that we find in research that some people respond well to folate and some people don't. It's just very interesting. And did I get that right, Dr. Walsh? Yeah, you got it exactly right. If a person um, uh, has uh, under-methylation, <clears throat> they, they, the methylation can be improved by giving them folate. However, folate has, the unfortunately, for some people, lowers serotonin and dopamine activity. So you can't do it for people who have depression or anxiety very often. So those of you that are challenged with depression can certainly look into this and uh, it'll give you some answers of why uh, psychiatrist medications have just not hit the right target for you. In some cases, it might make you feel worse. But you also have found similar things with schizophrenia. So tell me about how overmethylation and low methylation might uh, result in different symptoms of schizophrenia. Well, what we find is that there are that schizophrenia also is a name given to more than one completely different disorder. Uh, people who are who are diagnosed with schizophrenia, who happen to have maybe classic paranoid schizophrenia, they tend to be overmethylated people. They're suffer, they they suffer from extraordinary high levels of of uh, activity of norepinephrine. They also tend to have low activity of a neurotransmitter called NMDA, and uh, that's a nasty combination. And these people, it's a, they have a sensory disorder. They hear voices or they see things that aren't there or they may even feel things tactically that aren't there. 
um, and and for them, uh, a treatment that was developed by the great Abram Hoffer and the great uh, Carl Pfeiffer more than 30, 40 years ago, still works beautifully for them. Namely, what they, they give nutrient therapy that lowers activity of dopamine and enhances NMDA activity. And, is, and, and, we, and it's, it stood the test of time and works beautifully for that type that we call it a phenotype or biotype of schizophrenia. And that's the largest biotype. But then you have a completely different group that have a, have a, a thought disorder. And these are the undermethylated schizophrenics. It's about 20% of all the schizophrenics in the world. And they, they tend to be more catatonic, and they sort of shut down. They're obsessive-compulsive. They, uh, but their main problem is they, they have delusions. They believe all kinds of crazy things that can't possibly be true. And uh, only, uh, only about 5% of them have any, any um, involvement with, with hearing voices. So one group, the two groups are completely different in their symptoms. And, and then there's a third group, which are the, the pyrrole disorder uh, schizophrenics that have an extraordinary overload of, of oxidative stress that has caused a, this condition uh, that they get diagnosed with schizophrenia, but they're different uh, in their behaviors, in their, in their traits, and uh, interestingly, they're the ones who have both voices and they also have delusions. Uh, and there are nutrient therapies that have been we've been that have been used by by hundreds of doctors throughout the years that that can really help them. Although our 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 knowledge of science, brain science, has not quite got to the point yet where we can we could we could totally uh, normalize their behaviors uh, with nutrients alone. Uh, a typical patient will come in with maybe four or five or maybe even more really powerful medications. These these. They're called atypical antipsychotics, and uh, what, when, when we finish normalizing their brain chemistry with respect to nutrients, usually they can get down to a single medication at a fairly low dose, and so and and they they unfortunately still need to have some medication support if they have schizophrenia, and uh, but that's not a bad way to go through life if you can if, if a low level, low dose of a medication together with a nutrient therapy. Can allow you to have a you know have a family and have a career and live a norm, fairly normal life, uh, and and not have severe side effects. So that's 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 probably where we are with schizophrenia. So like an overmethylated schizophrenia, that might be what we used to call chronic paranoid schizophrenia, or the classic paranoia, voices, agitation, anxiety, and uh, it's the same uh, concepts apply. Like these people who are overmethylated will still have a poor reaction to SSRIs and SAMI and methionine, and better reaction to benzos and lithium. Now the undermethylated, uh, he was saying, more delusional with obsessive tendencies, anxiety, catatonia, etc. And likewise, again, the lab values will be looking at high histamine levels, high basophils, depressed SAMI to SAH, with a similar response to uh, antidepressants that are added in addition to therapy. It's quite interesting because some of these, like the delusional people, have been extremely hard to treat. I mean, it's just like the delusions never go away. And this sounds like a very useful tool to add. Yes, I think it really is. You've, you've described this exactly right. Okay. 
Um, now, you were commenting that you, you had some generalizations, and all generalizations are false. I just want to point that out to the audience. But you had some general concepts of, you know, characteristics of somebody that might be over-methylating and somebody under-methylating. And obviously, this is uh, anecdotal evidence just based on observations with this, you know, maybe the science yet to be understood. So what are general qualities that you would look for in somebody that over-methylates versus under-methylates? I've actually reported this at, at American Psychiatric Association annual meeting. Uh, undermethylated people are, are really quite different from the rest of the population. They're born this way, and they tend to be obsessive-compulsive. They, uh, 75% of them have seasonal allergies. They are competitive people. They are driven to be the best. If they play a game or if they're in a career, they're, they're really competitive. They want, they want to, they're driven to succeed. I've worked with some of the world's greatest athletes and almost all of them are undermethylated. And, uh, they, they tend to be, uh, uh, they tend to be slimmer than than the rest of the population. They, um, but they 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 suffer from interior anxiety. Many of them have high anxiety behind a calm exterior. And actually, there are we've recorded now thirty different traits and symptoms that are associated with undermethylation. And yeah, there are, there are, uh, these are generalities with quite a few exceptions, but they're pretty strong generation. Uh, in general, and we can, after we spend maybe a half an hour with a patient and do a medical history, we can we're pretty accurate at at, at predicting their lab results with respect to methylation. Then you have the overmethylated people. These are some of the nicest people uh, in the world. They they make wonderful neighbors. They're they're not they're not uh, competitive. They're, they're, they don't try that hard to be better than everybody else, but they, they are, they tend to volunteer and, and, and to be helpful. A lot of them are nurses. They, they, they volunteer for things. They, they really care about other people, but they are, they are prone to high anxiety. They're prone to food and chemical sensitivities. They tend to, tend to underachieve their, their intelligence. Um, Academically and even and even in jobs, they're just not driven for perfection. They're not detailed people. So uh, those are those that those are two of the groups. One of the depression groups are the pyrrole group. They're especially interesting because they're so easy to spot. They um, they 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 do not like mornings. They're night people and they don't do well in the morning. Many of them. Breakfast. They have a. Uh, they 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 love spicy foods, saltier spicy foods. They uh, many of them have problems getting to sleep at night. They uh, they have mood swings. They tend to be very anxious people. Uh, they they if they take a plane, they might be a white knuckle flight. Uh, but they they have very classic symptoms. Many of them have very pale skin. They uh, they they're uh, zinc deficient and B6 deficient. They have poor short-term memory. Many of them many of them have very little or no dream recall because your your hippocampus or your brain needs B6 and zinc to function. And these people are devoid of that. They're very depleted, extraordinarily depleted of B6 and zinc. So they 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 have dreams every night, but many of them uh, may not remember them. Uh, I, I've met people who've never had even a hint of a dream uh, their entire lives, and and it's almost always pyrrole disorder. That's interesting. Now, there's been a tremendous increase in the number of autism cases from one out of 2,500 to maybe one out of 42, and I've done an article on this and found it mostly to be environmental 
uh, with maybe 25% uh, genetic. So how do you account for the uh, explosion in autism cases? Well, back in, 18, back in 1999, uh, I had the world's biggest chemistry database for depression. And what we discovered was something that no one had, had at that time had even focused on. And we found that virtually all of them are undermethylated. Well, undermethylation has a lot to do with, with, with your genetics and epigenetics. It, and, and that process in early development, the nine months in the womb, uh, if you're over if you're undermethylated, uh, your, your, your gene expression will be different. Your basic chemistries will be different. And, uh, I think this is what the predisposition for autism is. The, the real question about autism, there have been a couple of mysteries. One of them is why are so many of these kids completely normal and functioning typically until about the age of 20 months. I mean, they might be learning to talk and charming their grandparents and singing and happy. And then very suddenly, very often, I've had hundreds and hundreds of families tell me that, that, uh, that within just days or weeks, they completely change and develop this thing called autism. And it's, it's a rather shocking change in the functioning of the children. They, they often lose all speech. They, they, lose the, um, they, they lose their eye contact. They have a divergent gaze. They tend to isolate and have odd repetitive movements, and, and they, they tend to be very troubled, and they develop food sensitivities. So the, the mystery has always been what could possibly cause such a dramatic change in functioning so quickly. The second greatest mystery is why does it go away after onset? Once autism onset occurs, this is something they'll probably have to deal with the rest of their lives. Uh, so there's all these mysteries associated with autism. Um, I'm, I'm uh, about to begin a book on autism, and I, I think the key is that I believe autism is one of these epigenetic disorders where, where environmental insults have overwhelmed, overwhelmed their DNA and caused permanent changes in gene expression. And it could be it could be mercury. It could be uh, any, there's all kinds of environmental insults that I believe can trigger autism in a vulnerable child. The vulnerability, which is the genetic part that you mentioned, the vulnerability I think is epigenetics related to this undermethylation process that's so vital to normal development in a, in a child. Could vaccines be one of the things that just pushes them over that edge? Well, they certainly could. Um, uh, again, these are children, maybe 2 3 4% of the population, or maybe even higher now, uh, are vulnerable to autism. And, and so they're right on the edge of developing autism. So if, you, if, if they had uh, one of these older vaccines that had thimerosal or mercury in it, that certainly uh, could, could possibly trigger the autism in them. Uh, but there are many insults. I've, I've had cases of children who, had, uh, who, were, in, who were injured or, had, or in auto accidents who immediately developed autism right afterwards. I think there's a number of environmental insults that could do this. And, of course, we have a lot more pollutants and nasty things in our environment than we used to 50 years ago. And, and so, yes, it, I, I think the recipe for autism is to have a genetic predisposition and then an environmental insult. Yeah, some of the studies show that environmental pollution is one of the risk factors. So what can uh, one do to uh, help these children? 
Well, there's two parts of it. Uh, the if if in fact this is if autism truly is epigenetic in nature, that means it is a complex disorder, involves probably many different genes that have gone awry. So you have to fight a battle on a lot of different fronts. They might have a severe GI tract problems. They may not be able to uh, tolerate. Uh, certain proteins like casein and gluten, they, their brains develop differently. Autism brains uh, have, are, are, are strikingly different in structure and in functioning than, than uh, you might say, typical children. Uh, they, they may have immune problems. Uh, they may have problems with speech, with socialization. So it's very complex, and that's why it's so difficult to make progress with autism, and uh, one thing we learned uh, with the thousands of cases we looked at, we know that you can make that early intervention is everything. You can make more progress with a with a two year old in in a year than you could in or even even in a month than you could in six or eight months with a six year old. So, and this is one thing everybody agrees on: early intervention is everything. But I think the the final solution to autism is going to be prevention. It now looks like uh, with new brain science and new laboratory capability, it looks like we may already have the ability to identify with inexpensive lab tests newborn babies who are prone to autism. And, and we now know that, that the most epigenetic disorders like cancer and, and I believe autism are, are caused by oxidative overload on a part of their DNA called guanine, <clears throat> and and that this is what what triggers triggers most epigenetic disorders. In other words, it looks like prevention might be relatively simple and easy, whereas treating once the disease hits, it's a very complex disorder. And of course, everybody is you know, constantly trying to improve that. But I, I really think that in the future, the real answer will be just like the answer to polio many years ago. We never learned how to help these poor children who developed polio, which was also a complex disorder where a lot of these kids were in wheelchairs and, and crippled. Um, but the final solution was to understand the true cause and then to develop prevention. And I think that's what's going to happen to autism. And yes, right now, according to the Center for Disease Control, one out of every 88 children is, is diagnosed with autism, and I think it's one in every 42 males are diagnosed with autism. Right. And Stephanie Sanoff, my college roommate, predicts it will be one out of two in future years. But I always saw autism as kind of the final common pathway of everything going wrong. And there are genetic tests out that you can, even before the baby is born, you can determine the uh, genetic risks for autism. So maybe there's hope down the road. Uh, what about bipolar disorder? I mean, are you finding anything that might help those people? Yes, uh, I've been uh, studying intensively, studying bipolar disorder for the last four years. And, and the reason is that I, I, I was frustrated because I had more than 1,500 patients with bipolar, and I felt like I didn't understand it. <clears throat> I felt that nobody understood it. And there are mysteries related to bipolar that no one has an answer for yet. Uh, we have no idea why it starts or what the mechanism is. Uh, for example, most Bipolar patients, um, many of them are completely okay or quite okay until they're about 20 years old, and then suddenly they become they have intense mania, which is a striking condition. The question is, what could possibly what could go, be going on in the brain that could possibly cause such a radical change in functioning? 
And then again, why doesn't bipolar go away after onset? And 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 it, uh, some of the mysteries are why, after a, a period of prolonged period of mania, why does it suddenly descend into depression? Why do they? And then why does depression after a while? Why do they return to mania? And why do they? Many of them. If, I'm, if not successfully treated, why do they have a lifetime of switching back and forth between mania and depression? Well, uh, there's been absolutely marvelous science advances in the last few years. The neuroscience of the brain, the understanding of, of how neurons are regulated and why they fire and why they can become hyperactive or hypoactivity, it's really, it's really inspiring to see this marvelous neuroscience. Well, in studying this, uh, my colleague and I, Dr. Robert DeVito, who's a psychiatrist, um, we, we, I don't want to say stumbled on, but we discovered there's one single mechanism that can explain everything. So we're now writing a book. Uh, we want to get this out hopefully in the next few months. And it's, it's, um, the book is entitled Exploring the Mysteries of Bipolar, a Neuroscience Approach. And in that, we have uh, developed what we think is a very advanced theory of bipolar. And, um, you know, you, you can't, it's hard to fight an enemy if you don't know what it is. So what that, is that mechanism? Uh, what is the uh, cause that you're suspecting? Well, it's, there, we found a mechanism that can explain every, every piece of this, and it has, it's what's known as a channelopathy. It has to do with ion channels in the membranes of your, neur- of your neurons, your brain cells, that malfunction. And it has to do with, um, with the inability to retain uh, a neuron's voltage. And it's, it's a process where you, where you can't maintain the ionic concentrations inside and outside the neuron that will, that, that will regulate it. And, and it, it, it's a direct cause of the mania. And then it also explains why the mania turns to depression. It has to do with, with potassium ions primarily and the inability to regulate the concentration of potassium ions outside and inside the neuron. Wow, that's fascinating. So what would your approach be for Alzheimer's disease? Well, we've, we, I did actually patent a, a, um, a therapy, a nutritional therapy for, for autism that also seems to be directly related to Alzheimer's. Um, we know a number of things about Alzheimer's. We know that they are... Um, they have extraordinary oxidative overload, and they have extreme inflammation. And uh, we, one, one new branch of science that is really thrilling is the whole emergence of knowledge of glial cells, glial cells, G-L-I-A-L, cells in the brain. That, uh, by the way, uh, Senator, um, our, 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 our senator from Arizona just developed a, a glioblastoma that apparently yeah. is... Uh, him. Uh, but Senator you, McCain, you're talking about? Yes. And, and anyway, these glial cells, are, are there are just as many glial cells as there are neurons. And we now know that, uh, that the, one of the most exciting parts of neuroscience is how the glial cells and your neurons are, partner, are partners in neurotransmission and how, they, and how they nourish every brain cell you have and how they, and, and, and how they participate in, in memory. And um, this, I think, has everything to do with, with a lot of disorders but I think Alzheimer's is one of them. The real question is, why is it that, that, that your brain neurons begin to die at a really rapid rate in Alzheimer's? 
I mean, the normal, a normal human being, uh, adult human being, actually loses 400,000 brain cells every year. Now, that sounds like a lot, but actually we have 80 billion brain cells. So really, after 20 years, we only lose like a half a percent of our brain, and that's not very much, uh, and, and especially since we don't use most of our brain to begin with. But in Alzheimer's, it, the rate is millions and millions, of them. I mean, tens of millions instead of just a few hundred thousand are destroyed, and the question is, what is causing this? It's called apoptosis, and what are the conditions? And what, I think one of the clues is they've found in, in, in Alzheimer's that people with all, people who die of Alzheimer's, when they do a, uh, an autopsy, they find they have less than one-third the normal level of a protein called metallothionine. Metallothionine is a protective protein in the brain. And in, and in the blood-brain barrier, and it's a very protective. And um, people who die of Alzheimer's have less than one-third of that protein compared to old people who died of something else. So we developed the metallothionine promotion therapy, which is um, a, a combination of nutrients. Uh, I, I patented this just and, and, and gave it to a charity so it's uh, available at very low cost to people. And we're, we've started our, um, we, we started our first... Um, few careful studies giving this therapy to people diagnosed with Alzheimer's. We've, we've got our first 180 people that we've done, and we don't like to say too much about it because uh, really we need to have double-blind controlled studies, and we need to have FDA approval before we can really suggest that this is, is something that's truly beneficial. All I know is that... Wow, that sounds fascinating. It's, it's very, I'd have to say it's promising but unproven at this point, but we're working but on it. I'd just like to interject here that low methionine is connected to low oxidative, is connected to low glutathione levels and high oxidative stress, and that this is a material, I think, that regulates metals. And we'll learn more about uh, uh, reversing Alzheimer's disease next week with Dr. Bredesen, who is actually reversing Alzheimer's disease. So in closing, uh, Dr. Walsh, do you have any closing points and you can tell people how to get a hold of you? Well, uh, a lot of this can be found on our website, walshinstitute.org. If you, if, you, if you just Googled Walsh Research Institute, you'll be able to find a lot of information. Uh, I do have a book called Nutrient Power that, that, that uh, describes most of this. That's available uh, from our website or from uh, Amazon. And it's also in bookstores. In fact, I just found out it was this Amazon now calls it a bestseller. Um, and, but really, the basic thing that people need to know is that people are biochemically unique. Biochemical individuality uh, has so much to do with why people are different and why, why certain diseases and disorders are there. And it really would be great for people to learn what their biochemistry is. And I think that'll be a movement in the future. I think that's going to be something that will be medically determined for everyone probably soon after they're born. That is very exciting that it's not one size fits all because that's obviously a paradigm that hasn't worked for us. Any uh, further closing words? We have a minute left. Uh, What would you like to say to our audience? Well, uh, we would love to be able to help people with depression and schizophrenia and behavior disorders and autism with diet if we could just do it with diet. Unfortunately, because we're fighting genetics, we, we may have to supply many, many times the RDA of certain things, and a person just couldn't eat that much food. 
The other thing I want to say is that one of the biggest surprises I had in clinical work was that, yes, uh, most human beings, if you do a complete study of them, you'd find that they are probably, because of genetics, very depressed in certain key nutrients. And if they only knew what they were, it would be great if they had many times the RDA. RDA. Uh, I've got to close up now. So nutrients are important, and it's very individual. So I advise the listeners to go do your research. Find out how your chemistry is different from others. So you do your research, consult with your doctor, and so you can go out there and help yourselves and help others. So be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.